1: Welcome to Nessun Dormer, your chat about 80s and 90s football, welcome back. We are well into the double digits of episodes now and speaking of numbers, this week's episode is all about big numbers because specifically we'll be chatting about the progress of the British transfer record from Trevor Francis right through to Alan Shearer and we'll also throw in some European ones and world ones as well that tickle our fancy. Joining me as per is Mr Rob Smythe, hello Rob. Hello, hello, hello. And to help with this subject as big as this, we've got a couple more as well. We've got Mr. Gary Naylor. Hello, Gary. Hello. And also on debut, making his debut off the bench, is uh, Mr. John Silk. Hello, John. Hi. We'll also be chatting about another journeyman of the week, which this week we have chosen as Paul Merson. I know some of you might have done a sharp intake of breath and gone, hang on, is he even a journeyman? But we'll talk about that later on. If you want to get in touch with this podcast, we are on Twitter at Nessandormapod. You can get in touch on the email, contact at nessandormapod.com And there's a website as well, which has a mailing list and all that kind of stuff. Also, we're available on, as you know, because you're listening, on Acast, on iTunes. And if you fancy leaving a review, please do. Those of you who joined us since our glorious debut on the Guardian Sport Network, welcome <laughs> along. I hope you've actually stuck around because you may have disappeared by now, but hopefully not. So that is going to be us this week. Uh, don't forget to get in touch. Thanks very much. So let's crack on straight away and talk about british transfer record from trevor francis to alan shearer now why have we picked trevor francis to alan shearer well from my point of view there's some general points to make on the figures alone and i'm happy to hear people's views on this on the figures alone trevor francis and alan shearer's transfers in britain were complete game changers purely on the figures alone because actually they both doubled the previous record so that's the first thing you need to understand all right it helped me to understand anyway because I think before Francis, the player before Francis was 500 grand or so. It was David Mills. And then all of a sudden, Trevor Francis came in at 1.1 million. And likewise, when Shearer came in, we'll talk about that a bit later on. But he also doubled, pretty much doubled, the figure that had been paid before him as well. And interestingly, the ones in between uh, went up in sort of what you might call normal, sensible increments. What do we think that was for then? Is it, is it Was it managers giving it the large one or was it at that particular time with Francis and Shearer, Rob?
3: Uh, I don't know about Francis, but I think with Shearer, you we talking about one of the best players in the world. He just had a great European Championship. Um, Blackburn pretty much asked what they wanted. And also it was Keegan and Newcastle who weren't averse to the grand statement. Having said that, I think Man United would have paid £15 million for him as well, so it wasn't just a Newcastle thing. But yeah, I, I think in his case, yeah, just
2: one of the best players in the world. That simple, really. Uh, Thomas Kuhn, in his book *The Structure of Scientific Revolutions*, invented the phrase <laughs> "paradigm shift." I know it well. Shift. Yeah.
1: <laughs> did paradigm... he invent the phrase "paradigm shift"? I didn't I know think that. He did, yeah. I've used it many and, times, uh, probably incorrectly, but I didn't know that he'd invented it.
2: And crudely put, his his view was that in order to, for things to change, the previous generation had to die off, um, and we're we're perhaps uh, living through different times in 2018. But. Um, Certainly with, with both of those transfers, that there was a sense in which a statement was needed to be made or a statement was wanting to be made. I mean, Clough had paid a lot of money for Peter Shilton and it had been a fantastic buy. It was obviously on the recommendation of of Peter Taylor, who did the, uh, the transfer work and was a goalkeeper himself. And he pursued Trevor Francis. And I mean, I'd seen Trevor Francis as a teenager I think it was 19 or 20 playing for Birmingham City and he was absolutely electric at Goodison Park I was quite young myself uh, not much uh, not much uh, younger than Francis and um, he was electric he was a little bit like watching a teenager Ryan Giggs in in 1990 he was he was that quick I think he scored one goal they were trying to kick him they couldn't get close enough to kick him and he he looked a bit like a, a footballer from the future and I think Clough Wanted him, he wanted to make a statement that Nottingham Forest European Cup winners were not a small town club. And of course, Francis delivered. He scored the winning goal from John Robertson's uh, pass to win the uh, European Cup. And, um, you know, it, that statement was correct. Newcastle were almost the opposite of, of where they are now. They, they wanted to make a, a statement by bringing home uh, their, their local hero and uh and they 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 did so so i think there was there was almost a bit of um a bravado or a bit of uh showiness to both of those transfers which perhaps inflated them a little bit but it did show that that both clubs wanted to move in in different spheres and sometimes you've you've got to put a marker down sometimes you need to make a paradigm shift john
4: yeah i mean obviously i wasn't born until 79 so my memories of Oh, bad luck. So in, <laughs> Of him winning, of him winning the European Cup of Forest, are not too clear. Um, my memories of him were far greater when, when he actually sort of started working on ITV. I think in the late eighties, early nineties, and as a commentator, he was someone who just seemed to have a permanent cold.
1: Yeah, that is true, actually. Yeah,
4: uh, sort of a blocked up nose. That was the one thing I had about him. And I also just discovered today that um, he was actually purchased nine months before I was born. So I don't know. Pretty Much he was he was bought when I was conceived, pretty much. So
3: that's a, a nice <laughs> well, two, thing, two, yeah. yeah. Two, two big <laughs> things happened that summer, yeah. So, uh, one, Rob, what one quick point, and cheer also is that for the first time in '96, there was all kinds of money floating around. Mike Gibbons, who's been on here before, knows more about it, but I think the TV deal was re signed in '96 and it was it went through the roof, so there was a lot more, uh, yeah, a lot more money to play with, basically. And we saw that with other clubs. I think uh, like Middlesbrough buying Ravenelli, you know, I know it wasn't 15 million, but I think that's another reason why Newcastle were able to spend what you, so much over the record.
1: What you do learn when we look at it as well is that once you, it, once you ring the bell, it can't be unrung. You know, transfer fees never go down. Mm. So once you've made mm. that, double, that double leap in a fee, like it happened with, with Francis and like it happened with Shearer, it's almost like then that's the price. You cannot pay anything less than that price. Sorry, John.
4: Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, of course, my memories of Shearer are much clearer, and I, and I think I pretty much agree with Rob, that there are some that stand out for being the best players pretty much in the world at the time. I mean, Shearer being one of them. Uh, also, there was this whole euphoria around the time of Euro 96. And, and I think, with, along with probably Ronaldo, the Brazilian, the slightly larger one uh, at the time, these were probably the two, two top strikers in the world. Stan Collymore, as good as he was, who held the record before him, Probably wasn't quite in that bracket, uh, and then suddenly you also had this thing in that until about the Klinsman signing, I think, of '94, seemed to be sort of a benchmark moment of of where the Premier League was now on a par with you know La Liga and the, and uh, and Serie A in terms of being able to attract the world's best stars and therefore actually also keep their best players as opposed to Gazzo and, and David Platt, of course, who left these shores in in big bucks deals. Now it was a case of, of of Shearer going between obviously two Premier League clubs.
3: And actually, just one other thing: Shearer, all on the list, I think Shearer is the only one that was a world record as well as the British record. That's which right, kind of yeah. reflects that point. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So if we could go back, you've already mentioned Gary that the, the Trevor Francis thing. I think again, it's worth a lot of people know the story about Trevor Francis, but it's worth remembering that after signing, he did basically crock himself fairly early doors, didn't he?
2: Surely co- not. Trevor Francis <laughs> inches? <interest>? Never. <laughs> well, his, was his
1: first game for Forest, the European Cup final? No. No, it was his first European game, I think. First
3: European game. Was yeah. It? yeah, yeah. he was cup-tied, wasn't he? No? no possibly I did.
0: No, he can't have he a game for
3: that or it, I don't know whether they had different cup-tied rules then that you could only play at a certain time. Oh, no, he couldn't or. play till the final anyway. And, and yeah, maybe he, he just... He came there. in and
1: he, he took Martin O'Neill's spot on the right side of midfield, which Martin O'Neill still is quite, well, I don't say bitter, but obviously still has a regretful feeling about shall we say and but as you say Gary then when he was called upon to Clough always made a very big point about he made always made a big point with Chilton that saying it doesn't matter if you don't notice him for four games because when you have to notice him he'll do what I have paid the money for him to do and there's something I think that kind of followed through into the Francis thinking with him as well you pay the money you've made a point before in other episodes Gary about the top players are probably worth the money because when it comes yes, to the time to do it, they do it. It's the players who are that next level down and in today's game are being paid for forty, thirty million for that are perhaps not worth the money.
2: So after Yeah. Yes, I think there's a there's a there's a there's plenty of that and I mean we don't want to just focus on that one game or that no, indeed. that one goal. But it, but it was extraordinary that the British record transfer fee was the man who scored the winning goal in the European Cup final and it was a fine goal, I mean Robertson made that yard of space that he was probably the, the best in the world at at that time slung in a cross but uh, Francis as they say had a lot to do and he got his head on it and he got it controlled he got it into the top corner and that was the one goal he needed to win and you know for, for younger listeners yes Nottingham Forest did win the Champions <laughs> League twice
4: yeah i mean i I actually was during today as as i was making a list of these you know these record deals it was kind of surprising actually i made a list of hits and misses and i would say 80 percent probably fell into the hit category i think we often remember the misses um i put trevor francis in the hit category as someone who doesn't remember him playing for us but (laughs) purely for the fact that he scored the winning goal in the european cup final.
1: That point about the European Cup final—have you seen the "I Believe in Miracles" documentary that Johnny Owen made about Forrest? Yeah, it's, it's a it's a great. It's really worth a watch, anyway. But there's a great scene at the end when Martin O'Neill sat in the studio with Clarence Seedorf, and is it Cannavaro? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he says, you yeah. know, in that, that brilliant act, he's going, "How many European Cups have you got?" Then you know, he says, and he said, "Because I won two, you know. And he sat there with those big, thick glasses on. as he? Had it. it's, just, it's a wonderful in moment.
3: Seedorf
2: won about twelve. <laughs> yeah, with about, with about fourteen different
1: clubs. <laughs> yeah. Hey, journeyman of the yeah, week, Clarence Seedorf. Maybe another week, maybe. <laughs> the,
2: there's one thing that we haven't spoken about with regard to the the um, paradigm shift of of <laughs> Shearer's You're transfer. You're sticking feet. with this,
1: aren't you? Go on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: am, and it's it's another paradigm shift because the Bosman ruling was coming through. But for a long time before the Bosman ruling came through, I think at the end of 95 and into 96, there was a sense that, that things were awry with the transfer system. It was never going to carry on the way it was. And therefore, it was, it was quite difficult to know the landscape of future transfer fees. There were tribunals. There was talk of a multiplier of the player's salary. And it was all this kind of stuff that um, was there. And it was a strange time. There was no transfer window, of course. Um, and it was, it was kind of hard to get a grip on what a player's true value was before things after three or four years settled down and we understood freedom of contract for for players and players moving um, uh, after the, the Bosman ruling. But uh, certainly through most of the 90s, Bosman was was, if not through... Bosman, then certainly through a ruling as to the legality of the retain and transfer system, which I think is what it was called. Um, It it, it sort of hung like a shadow over football in general, and nobody quite knew where the transfer market was going.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I tell you what I always think is kind of amusing is moving on from Francis perhaps anyway towards Brian Robson was the the parading of the players, which of course we see even in grander scale today with players like Alexis Sanchez recently and Cristiano Ronaldo and other players that can't even juggle the ball in the Bernabeu. Um, The parading of Brian Robson, I remember, was always an amusing one as he's on the pitch signing, I think, before a game. Maybe Rob can shed some light on, on, on that particular signature. And I always remember or I've seen videos of Ron Atkinson not only parading him saying this guy's not even a gamble this guy's not even a gamble um, mm-hmm. and, and I always think that's a particularly interesting thing because we do sort of wonder if you know if these things are going to be a gamble and I'm sure we're going to come to a few misses uh, in the near future but but I always thought the parade uh, is is such a funny moment in the signing of these big guys
3: yeah they actually you're right he, had, he went on the pitch with a, a perm and a gold pen which <laughs> was, uh, funny enough <laughs> I think like, I think they beat Wolves five nil that day and I think Sammy McElroy who Robson was gonna replace pretty much scored a hat trick. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. but yeah you're right. He did Atkinson said exactly that, he's not even a gamble, this fella's pure gold, and yeah, he mm-hmm. was right. Talking about the parade, didn't Clough turn up for Francis signing from a game of squash, wielding yeah, I squash
2: think so. it, everyone. Yeah, a bit like the cricket bat that uh, the guy <laughs> yeah. has in Spinal Tap. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I've seen, I've seen, a, I've seen a, a new transfer paraded, and I, I, I can't recall who it was, but I think it was at Stamford Bridge. <laughs> and it may even not have been a new transfer. It may have been a, a, a contract renewal where at halftime they brought the desk onto the pitch in order to get the photo <laughs> off. <laughs> that so can't be what? true. <laughs> they did that. It's absolutely true. They
1: certainly he did that with Brian Mike
2: Robson. Notes, carrying a desk on, and a chair onto the pitch so the player can sign it on the pitch, of course, being roundly booed by the away
3: They <laughs> <laughs> did that with Brian Robson, Rob, Rob, did you say? Yeah, yeah I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure they had a, yeah. a really yeah. crap like school desk. Yeah. And, yeah. And That's pitch. amazing. Was it but G-Plan? Was, G-Plan? I, don't guys, time, I
1: don't know
3: if there's any chewing gum stuck
1: underneath it. <laughs> a G-Plan desk of MFI. Yeah.
2: Rob absolutely must tell the Howard Kendall story with the clock because you tell it so well. What, sorry, where the clock went back? I Didn't don't... you tell a story? No, no, it, I know. It was a, it was a transfer deadline, and I think it was Kendall. It may be an apocryphal story, <laughs> and um, it, it was the times when they were faxing through, you know, and faxes were broken or something, and they were. That was about a year
1: ago. Like, they were still doing faxes about a year ago. I said, like, how, <laughs> how can we still be using fucking faxes? <laughs> <This> <laughs>
4: This must be a record,
1: I, I Gary. You've gone on twenty Kendall's
4: minutes into the order. You've gone twenty, minutes, in. you
2: think, got 20 minutes into the pod without mentioning Everton. Well done. Yeah, well done,
1: Gary. <laughs> think, think it's a t- paradigm shift.
2: <laughs> they took a photograph of the player signing with the clock behind him. But of course they moved the clock hands oh,
3: back. My God. I have heard out. that story. I don't know. I don't think I told you, but I have heard that. Yeah, you're right. So they could con them. That's right, that's brilliant because <laughs> you're right, they faxed into the league. And they wanted to show that they had... That's, I forget the details. That's a fucking brilliant story. And you're right. That did happen. They faxed the, the photo something and they had Wael clock back with well, yeah. Meanwhile, back at the transfer records,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the, why we, just while we're talking about misses and we talked about Trevor Francis, we jumped to Robson. It's only fair to say the next record transfer after Trevor Francis, of course, was Steve Daly who went from Wolves to City for 1.4 and a bit million who I think from is probably the most resounding miss, the biggest missing of a city, if you're going to put it in the football terms. It's, it's I think he's been voted in polls regularly as the biggest waste of money in English football.
3: Yeah, he was certainly till recently till uh, a few others came on the scene. But yeah, um, oh, you're right. I'm just sorry. I'm just looking up the Howard Kendall thing. It was actually, it was Dave Watson from Norwich. He did do that. <laughs> he missed the deadline lag like, to make his debut on the Saturday. So ah, they right. took a pitch. Anyway, Sorry. Yeah, I, I, Steve Daly was slightly for my time, but growing up as a United fan, you kind of, you always heard stories about just how shit he was. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's all I've got to offer. <laughs> was,
4: yeah, I have nothing on with
2: Stephen Daly. But I, I, mean, I have a little because it was very strange. He wasn't an England player. He was a run-of-the-mill, box-to-box midfielder. He never did get an England cap. And there was a kind of bidding war, and it was all being punted in the papers. There may have been a kind of proto-agent in the background in the days when agents were very, very new who was doing all of this. And and it, it, the numbers kept going up and going up and going up, and it ended up at £1.4 million. Now, not everything in football in those days, or indeed in these days, is absolutely, shall we say, pure and whiter than white and one looks back on that and thinks well you know it's all, it's all very strange, there was accusations I think between Peter Swales and Malcolm Allison that, that both of them yeah. were bidding it, it was up one was against the other it, there was, there was, it, it, it seems that there may have been more than met the eye and it, it may have been egos, it may have been something, something else, but he, was, he wasn't a £400,000 player, never mind a £1.4 million player.
1: It was symptomatic of everything about City under Alisson and Swales, I think, that basically massively inflated the price for a player who probably wasn't worth it, then blamed each other. It probably <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. perfectly sums up exactly where they were. He played 48 times for City and scored four goals, Steve Daly, before mm. being gently shuffled on the next one in the list after steve daly was the same year in was was andy gray who not long afterwards went from villa to wolves probably to replace yeah. steve daly actually with the money that they got for him
4: again the thing that stands out for me is the price of 1.469 it's almost <laughs> as if it was just like we're just going to push it slightly above the steve daly price um just to show that we're like, like we're we're, yeah. big,
2: we're
1: big men yeah
4: and they needed to pick a random figure somewhere between that and one and a half million. It was almost as if they were looking for money down the back of the sofa or something.
2: Well, it's £19,000 more, but what you've got to remember is that £19,000 will probably buy a row of terraced houses in Birmingham at that time, so it's not quite I mean, negligible. Oh, still counting, really. We?
4: Well, <laughs> I was going to say, what will nineteen grand get you in, in, in the UK nowadays?
1: <laughs> Depends where you're shopping, I think. but, but uh, I thought-
4: A season ticket at Arsenal,
1: maybe. But he went to Wolves, he played 133 33 times and scored 38 goals before, of course, Gary moving on to Everton, and we covered that season a few episodes yeah. ago. But uh, I yeah. think
2: that Andy Gray was a, was a double player of the year, because I think he was both young player of the year and player of the year before he made that move, so he was an established star and it was at a time when you just expected Scottish forwards to arrive in English football and, and do amazing things, and that, that that lasted for decades, really. It wasn't just a kind of fad. And Andy Gray, in some ways, might have been kind of the, the last of them, or perhaps it was Morris Johnston, who knows.
1: Just to pick up here the point that um, it's a misconception sometimes, because so much is made about Trevor Francis being the first million-pound footballer, that people think he was the first million-pound footballer in the whole world, and he, he wasn't. There have been a number of uh, a couple of million-pound transfers prior to it happening in Britain, The most recent one before Trevor Francis in 79 was Paolo Rossi went from Juventus to Vicenza for 1.75 million. So it actually took until 1986 before a British club caught up with what the Italians had been spending 10 years earlier in 1976. Mm. Interestingly, but I mean, obviously then after Andy Gray, Paolo Rossi was all right, wasn't he? Yeah, he went too bad. And then the, the the two world record world record transfers after Rossi to go into the into the international arena for a while were both Diego Maradona in eighty two and eighty four.
4: He wasn't too bad either.
1: He wasn't too bad either. And then the next one, of course, we've done Andy Gray. The next one after Andy Gray was Brian Robson, and about that was a waste of money, wasn't it, Rob?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's just it's weird. A club of that stature to be close to a one man team is it's not unprecedented, but it's pretty rare. And there were some bloody good players at United, but when Robson was missing, it made such a difference. They were, I think they would have won at least one, probably one title actually had he stayed fit. Everyone talks about 85-86 when they won 10 games in a row, but actually that wasn't the missed opportunity because they'd gone long for the end of the season. It was 83-84 when they famously beat Barcelona, including Maradona. A few days later, they beat Arsenal 4-0 to go top, and they looked great. Um, and it was late March, you know, they were flying, then Robson got injured and blah, blah, blah. But no, he was just a... An unbelievably good player who could do pretty much anything.
2: Yeah, you know, my, when... my father, my father was very dismissive of Brian Robson. I'm somewhere in between. <laughs> he was, and he dismissed him like this. We heard, and Rob's already mentioned it. All the injuries, and the injuries are, are kind of you know part of the the mythology of Brian Robson. And I remember my father turning around and saying, "Well, if he didn't play like that, he wouldn't be injured all the time, would he?" <laughs> and his point, his point was one, and it, it picked up on, on something that Bob Paisley said against about Liverpool players. He said, you know, how come, you know, you can go through a whole season? They selected 12 players, didn't they, in 81-82 and won the first division title. Um, he said, how come the players don't get injured? He said, well, we don't pass the ball to them where they're going to get injured trying to get the ball, or something along those lines. And this gung-ho, uh, Captain Fantastic style, um, it looks reckless, and it was reckless. And I don't think it's legitimate to separate Brian Robson, the reckless player, from Brian Robson, the player who was injured and therefore underachieved in terms of trophies in a career. And is it? Is it, and this is controversial, is it the case Well, this bit's that the, bit United... the bit
1: that's controversial. Okay, yeah, go
2: on. Did, did Manchester United need to lose that iconic figure, the Captain Fantastic, all that kind of stuff, in order to make that breakthrough and win the. the the title at last.
3: No, that's absolute horseshit. That that's <laughs> a theory that's used quite a lot about a lot of teams. And uh, no, I just it don't proves. buy that. So Robson Robson was just getting old. It wasn't that they it had nothing to do with that. At the first point, I take your point. He he could have been someone like, you know, Soonus was a bit savvier. Robson was deranged in his fearlessness. And I take your point yeah. and that, that didn't help him. But I think that's stretching, personally. But
2: where would some of the other players playing under his shadow? Where When he was on the no, pitch, was it? No, Brian's no going to get us out of trouble, Captain Fantastic. And when he was off the pitch, we're up against it, lads. We haven't got Captain Fantastic. Even if that was subconscious rather than conscious?
3: I, I'm not familiar with Jesper Olsen's subconscious, so I can't comment on. <laughs> But, <laughs> uh, no, I think there are examples of that. You know, for example, when um, and it's a slightly different point, but when, when Keane was sacked in 2005 a lot of people suggested that there was a kind of relief in the dressing room because they got to the point where they couldn't handle being bollocked anymore. And whether that's true, I don't know. But I think with Robson, he was such a selfless player. And the way he played, I don't see it like that, personally. I mean, maybe... One maybe those... but no, 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 One of the
4: things that was always quite funny about um, Robson at school is, whereas players maybe wanted to be like Mark Hughes or Ian Rush, we all wanted to get injured like Brian
1: Robson. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, he, I think it, the thing with Robson as well. Sorry, Rob, just is I think it's impossible. It's very hard to understate how important he was in those years between sort of eighty six and nineteen ninety
3: one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, he he was at his best under Atkinson, but I agree with you in the sense that, that there were times in that period when they were an absolute shambles. There's a good, there's a game they drew two all at home to Southampton, and they Jim had thrown one in early on. And it gets to the point where you can almost see Robson just think, after about 20 minutes, fuck this. And he just wins the ball off someone, basically barges about 12 people out the way and scores. It's like a really scruffy goal, but it was just the edge of the now. I'm not having this anymore. And I think yeah. that he did look after the team for so long.
4: Yeah, for me, the goal that kind of stood out for him most, or for me most, is the one he actually scored against Holland in 88, um, where again, it was like a leg-breaking moment, I think, with the keeper Hans van Bruckum. And this was like, if you could bottle Robson into like a 15-second cameo, that would probably be it. Unfortunately, it didn't really mean anything because Van Basten destroyed us that day.
3: It's quite um, cruel. The one time Robson was fit at a major tournament, yeah. half, half from 82, was when England lost all three games. Yeah, yeah I agree. Right. He was so good at that kind of dynamic, not quite solo goal, but kind of force of will goal. And the, sure. I just, there was a famous one against Liverpool in the semi-final in the FA Cup in 85. 1-0 down, plays a 1-2... Marches through and scores from about twenty-five yards. He was so good at doing that, and yeah. I don't know. I, I I've not seen a player. I've seen a players at United who were as influential certainly, and who were better, but but not quite had that kind of impact from making things happen on their own. We not can, even Ronaldo. We can um, we can have an episode
1: on Brian Robson. I'm sure. But we'll to, uh, <laughs> just to be clear, I think what not finished we, What what we are saying is is that that was we're up to October eighty-one for those listening. And I think what we can say, regardless of the disagreements, he was probably worth one and a half million, wasn't he, to Manchester United? Uh, The the next one was also involved in Manchester United, but it was going the other way. It was Ray Wilkins in 1984 who left Manchester United to go to Milan for the same price, actually, for 1.5 million.
4: Yeah, I think he falls into the hit category as well. Um, I would suggest, I think, maybe Rob would have a a, a better understanding than I would. But I think he he was one of these rare English players that kind of adapted to life
3: outside of the UK. Yeah, I think that's quite important, actually, and we'll see that later with David Platt as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know that much about Wilkins' career in Italy, but I get the impression that, yeah, he did absolutely fine. He he actually, funnily enough, most of the Italian clubs all wanted Robson that summer, um, and he almost went to Sampdoria in some really elaborate player exchange deal that involved Brady and Francis. And I think Milan wanted him as well, and in the end, when that wasn't going to happen, they bought Wilkins, a completely different player, but... Yeah, I think he did a perfectly decent job, as far as I'm aware.
1: Well, he had three years solidly at Milan, seventy-three appearances. So obviously he was a regular starter over there, and everything went.
3: Probably fine. That, the, the style of game probably suited him over there as well. The pace and everything. Yeah, maybe more than Robson.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, Wilkins for me at, at Chelsea and at Manchester United, is, he wasn't my kind of player at all. And it's no surprise to me that he he prospered more in Italy, where the, the game was slower. Uh, To me, if a midfield player is slowing the game down in English football, then with a handful or maybe even fewer than that uh, exceptions, they're not actually helping, they're hindering. And um, Wilkins always seemed to want more time on the ball. He always seemed to be playing 10 yards too far back, uh, too far inside his own half. Um, I, I... Felt you know I wanted I wanted an all-action player I mean obviously you know I, I, his rival was Peter Reid and you know yeah. I can t- I can give you this stat off the top <laughs> of my head here's a bit of Rob Smythe here because Wilkins got 86 caps for England and Peter Reid got 13 but Peter Reid got two uh, titles and Ray Wilkins didn't get any and uh, certainly not in England and I think there's something in that because often. Especially at that time, players who were slow in English football were were kind of lauded as being technical, when actually they were just slow. However, um, when you... you... I I didn't really care for Ray Wilkins, although he did play better for England after he'd had that time in in Italy. I think going to Italy improved him, but I think it was an environment in which he was more suited to his style of play.
1: To go back to just, however, though, Peter Reid and... Another thing they had in common was that they both got caught on camera doing saying something absolutely brilliant. There was one the other week that we did, Peter Reid accusing the Sunderland players of being as weak as fucking piss. After <laughs> a to, to think. But also, do you remember when Ray, Ray Wilkins, after the uh, Holland qualifying game against England and Ronald Koeman... Well, Ray oh, Wilkins thought Ronald Koeman yes. should have been sent off. yeah. And basically, yeah, yeah. the ITV guy said, and that's the end of the show, goodbye. And as he was moving his microphone away, Ray Wilkins said that... C-word should have been sent off, <laughs> literally as the, as the closing credits were, co- were coming on.
2: There's a. There's and of course, he threw of... threw the ball the referee, didn't need to get sent off for England. In '86, yeah, sorry, yeah, John. Yeah, that's
4: right. In '86 in as well. There's another great one of those sort of slow motion things I've seen in a. I think it's in the hero video where where Maradona's just destroyed England with the with the, the correct goal. Let's say when when he you can just see a slow motion of him going oh fuck off, like this. <laughs> Which is just so funny, as, as Pete has obviously been turned inside out uh, by the best player in the world at the
1: time. So, <laughs> just to give you, by way of comparison, Ray Wilkins went to Milan for 1.5 million in 84. In Maradona went from Barcelona to Napoli in 84 for 5 million. Mm. Arguably, the difference should have been larger in terms of price, <laughs> but, but there you go. Moving on from Wilkins, then we're back at United. May 1986, for the British transfer record was Mark Hughes coming from Man United to Barcelona. Venables signed him at Barcelona, Rob, is that right?
3: Yeah, he signed yeah. Lineker um, in the... Well, Hughes was done early, but it was to join after the 86 World Cup, which is when they signed Lineker as well, so yes. Hit, miss, John? It's uh, a huge um, miss.
4: I would say miss, yeah, but I think he had a loan spell at Bayern Munich, which I think was a bit closer to the hit.
3: Yes, category. absolutely. Um,
4: and, 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 but Lineker was largely a miss too from from I remember him getting stuck wide right, by the then-coach Johan Coy for the time, and I think neither of them kind of worked out. I've also seen sort of some grainy footage of Mark Hughes um, learning Spanish in a, in a classroom, uh, which is a, a sight for sore eyes. Um, yeah, I think obviously both of them kind of didn't really work out, um, but his loan spell, and then when he came back to United, I think I certainly had some scepticism, but um, he put my, my, my curiosity wrong because I think he was you know, as good as he was before.
3: Better, arguably. I think that's yeah. a bit harsh on Lineker. I, I know what you mean, he ends up playing wide right under Cruyff, but he had a really good first season, I think, under Venables. And his record was pretty good. But Oops. also, he integrated himself more than Hughes as well, which is another goes back to what you were saying about Wilkins. Yeah, well, so, exactly.
1: Wasn't Michael Owen when he went that he was still going to buy the Daily Mail from the shop round the corner and stuff? <laughs> Everyone said and didn't understand a word of Spanish apart from Bill um, or something.
4: And I think Michael Owen lived in a hotel throughout and sort of, complained recently in an article about how he wasn't given any sort of assistance really in trying to find somewhere
1: to live he really is a diabolically unpleasant man isn't he god bless him um so that was anything
3: else on hughes so yeah that was 2.3 th- sorry rob yeah no no just uh, done absolutely nothing to do with the go to Barcelona but i think if you ever do a thing on a list of great big game players he would be right up there that's the thing i remember for most you just mentioned the volley against oldham again don't you Oh, I gotta, does that count a bit? Um, <laughs> <just laughs> I mean,
0: panic. the other
4: thing with the Hughes and Lineker thing is uh, I would imagine one or both would have... Would they have started the European Cup final, no, no, was that bus. No, was,
3: that was the year before. So oh, okay. Archibald, Archibald started, and he, I think he was taken off. And he always says if he'd stayed on, they would have won. Um, okay. There's quite a bit... Just a, quickie, a quick thing on Lineker. There's a thing on YouTube where he's in the studio for the World Cup final in '86 bit uh, in West Germany and at that point he had move hadn't gone through and I think Des Lyon is talking to him about it and they might, I don't know if Venables, no, Venables can't be there but anyway And look, after a while they kind of tiptock around and Laurie Menamy just thunders in like the lad's on the contract <laughs> he's just had enough of the competition <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's really
3: funny uh,
2: uh, 2.2 million for Gary Lineker who scored 40 goals in the previous season and was the World Cups golden boot 2.2 million <laughs> I mean, I'm just putting it out there, Gary. I think he's He's still underrated, Lineker. Oh, I think so too. Better link
3: player. Much better link player than people remember. And just, again, a big game player, but so mentally tough. This is the thing people don't remember about
2: him. Physically so brave. Never pulled out of a challenge. Went for every single ball. Almost Mm. like
4: Brian (laughs) Robson. Oh, (laughs) did so
2: cleverly, (laughs) not (laughs) recklessly.
1: Uh Uh, said afterwards we're still on Welsh strikers actually two Welsh strikers on the trot got the British transfer records next was June 87 now again by way of comparison in 87 Ian Rush went from Liverpool to Juventus for 3.2 million we'll come back to that in a minute but in 1987 also Rude Hullett went from PSV Eindhoven to Milan for 6 million pounds so that was uh, in the same year again not a a bad signing
4: yeah but you could do a podcast on the Rush transfer to Juventus alone and (laughs) And the year or so he had over in Italy. I mean, there's these stories about him having baked beans shipped out to him uh, in Turin. And of course, there's the classic um, line, which I've actually spoken to him once about on the phone a bit, a little bit. And it was the classic line about living in Italy was like living in a foreign country.
3: Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not true, is it? Is it's
4: right? not. It was actually Dalglish, a Dal line. Because yeah. I, I spoke to him about this and, he, and I said, what about this? And, and he said, actually, it's not me. I never said that. Dalgleish joked about it, I think, in a press conference. And over the years, it kind of just stuck on him.
3: Yeah. It's quite, it's quite interesting that that happened, though. It shows that in the old days, something could take a, on a life of its own like that, whereas now, of course, <laughs> the you know, PR shot that two down two away. Yeah, yeah but, and someone would be sacked, probably. But, yeah, but thank
4: um, goodness, fake, fake news is gone now. We haven't got to worry about that anymore. Well, as I,
1: <laughs> as, <a> point. <laughs> as I sit here doing this podcast, and obviously people listening will know that, you know, we are all not in the same room because we live in different parts of the country. And the part of the country, I actually live in Ian Rush's hometown, and he was actually at my kid's high school last week, giving out awards at the high school awards evening, of which there's still about thirty of his extended family attending because he was one of quite a number of brothers and sisters in. Ross, he's yeah. from Flint.
2: Um, yeah, my uh, my brother worked in the Dole office in Flint, and uh, they they used to sign what a job. on on the, on the Dole. Yeah,
1: <laughs> there were two of his nephews. It's absolutely Two true. of his nephews were in my year at school. Both of them. Extremely good footballers in that local footballer sense, not anything like him, but still um, extremely good footballers.
3: When, when Rush is. I thought I going somewhere else. Both of them extremely. Anyway. <laughs>
2: yeah. but Rush was a fantastic footballer, and I, I thought about this this afternoon. I was trying to think what he had that, that made him different. And I mean, he had a bit of what Harry Kane has. It's of face in the penalty box was just fantastic. I remember him scoring a hat-trick, in a, I think, in a televised game against Aston Villa. And I remember turning to whoever I was watching it with and said, he scored three goals and he was standing still in order to score all three goals. I mean, how do you do that? Well, you just have that almost instinctive appreciation of space in a, in a crowded penalty box. But I think the other thing that, that Rush had is that over, say, 20 yards, he could take a yard out of any defender,
1: almost any quick, defender,
2: he, anyway. Yeah. He was very, very quick. But he also had the ball being supplied by Souness or Dalgleish, so he was getting the ball perhaps half a yard earlier as well. And he was also had... He read the game extremely well. We, we often talk about reading the game from a center half 's point of view. reads the game well or sometimes a midfielder we don 't often talk about forwards reading the game well. Harry Kane reads the game well, and so does he, uh, did Ian rush and You add those bits together, the passing coming from Dalgleish and from Sunus and and others, but those two in particular, his physical pace and his ability to read the game. And all of a sudden he's two yards ahead of any defender <laughs> in the days when the offside trap was being played all the time, and to spring the offside trap was no easy matter. Well, that's how you score 49 goals in a season, which is much was much, much harder to do then than it is to do today. He was an extraordinary player, and I, I don't think we give enough credit when you ask players the, the greatest strikers of the last fifty years, and he'll come up with Jimmy Greaves and John Charles and so on. I bet Ian Rush doesn't often in those top ten lists, but by God, he should do.
1: It's anti-wealth I mean, discrimination again. Sorry. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
4: the one thing is, well, about Russian, and it's funny how Rob mentioned how stories could tra- gain traction in those days. I always remember picking up this, um, uh, this magazine, Shoot, one week, and just seeing a picture of him on the front of Shoot magazine signing for Everton. And it was like Shoot had got this scoop about him signing for Everton. And it's like, wow. And they even had a picture of him in an Everton shirt. Okay. Then when you read into the magazine, it was an April Fool's joke, okay? But Rush had actually done this when he was still at Liverpool, and, and had gone through with it. And in those days, I mean, it was like wow, I, I couldn't believe it, you know? And it was I had a picture of him on the front page wearing an uh, uh, an Everton shirt, and and I, and I swear this is true. I mean, this kind of thing just couldn't happen now. I mean, now now five minutes after transfer is done, or even two weeks before, we we're already hearing about it. But in, in those days, obviously, you had this thing with. With transfers. And the funny thing was, it wasn't just an April Fool's
3: joke. Can you imagine the state of Twitter if Mo Salah <laughs> did that on April the 1st? Can you just imagine? Disrespect, showing no respect to the club. I, I, I think the point Gary made about him reading the game is a really, really good one. I always associate it with Rush just that, like, making an angled run from sort right of centre to left, little ball through, clip over the keeper. It's interesting point you make about the offside trap because, of course, in those days in Serie A, there were no offside traps, there were sweepers. So maybe that contributed to him yeah, not being quite successful. I, read his I don't I don't think he was as bad as everyone says though.
2: No, he, he wasn't.
3: Se- he got seven league goals. Now that sounds ridiculous, but actually the Serie A goals were kind of rationed. Yeah, it was a super premium year, on
2: goals then, wasn't
3: it? Leading sc- leading goals was Maradona with fifteen, he took penalties and he was Diego Maradona. <laughs> Juventus were also cr- Juventus were crap. They just got rid of Platini, Aldo Sereno was a good striker. Michael Loudre, I think, scored no goals that season. It was a really poor side. So Was, I think it was... playing for them then? No, he'd gone as well. Yeah. Platini had gone. Um, another guy who scored quite a few goals had gone. I forget his name. But I, just, I think it was a, he was a failure. There's no doubt about that. But I think it was a qualified failure. Mm. And he scored a last-minute winner in the Turin derby, which is a good memory to take. I read his first. I mean, my...
2: He was a failure as a foreign player <laughs> in Italy because that was the home of, of foreign players making their name. Obviously, Maradona, but plenty of others. But in terms of, at that time british players who who'd gone abroad seven goals wasn't bad i mean there were there were british players who went abroad who just disappeared who just went down down wormholes and you you didn't hear of them again um of course media was different in those days but if we think now that it's a challenge for an english player to adjust and learn a language and everything else think about it 30 years ago
1: he was also standing in the very long shadow of john charles wasn't he yeah. yeah. Which can't have helped because, you know, how often do you sign two top Welsh strikers to an Italian club? Just, you know <laughs> what I mean? I'm not being awful. I'm just saying, what are the chances? You know, and he had to, he was probably constantly being compared to John Charles and that would be a tough job for anybody in many ways. Right, so that was Ian Rush. We're up to June 87. Of course, he went back to Liverpool fairly sharpish afterwards and unseated. Who left when he went to?
3: Well, Aldridge stayed for a
2: year. Aldridge stayed for a year then.
1: then went,
3: didn't he?
2: Eventually yeah, he right. went, yeah. We're Rush up. was a substitute for a while.
1: Yeah, he was the Best transfer. And then he yeah, carried on scoring of. in the FA Cup till about last week, sometime or something. <laughs> uh then, so yeah, so uh then we're up to July eighty Hullitt was we've already mentioned Hullet in eighty seven as well. July eighty nine, Chris Waddle is transferred from Tottenham Hotspur to Marseille, four point two five million pounds. Uh I think that was, I mean, a, was that a world record with the, then.
4: I don't know if it was a world I record.
1: No, it counted, but it. it's less yeah. than Hullet's, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah right. Yeah, but on.
4: the thing that with the Chris Waddle one and that fee just like stood out like a sore thumb. I mean, I remember that story breaking and thinking, wow, Chris Waddle's gone to Marseille. He's gone for how much? That, that, that was possibly of all the fees that we're going to talk about today. That was a real shock to me because. At the time, I would say, at least in in England, we were thinking he wasn't even the best player in the country. He wasn't even the best winger in the country at the time. I mean, John yeah. Barnes was pulling up trees in Liverpool, of course. Um, although, I think Marseille did see something in him, because I think he was, of all the players, or certainly if, you know, one of the players who adapted and was probably most suited to the country he went to, he's certainly up there. I mean, he was someone who wasn't necessarily famous for tracking back, but he didn't have to do that in Marseille.
2: Yeah, but just to be Throw a slight spanner in that word, John. You know who who was in charge of Marseille at the time?
4: Well, I know who was the president at the time of Bernard Tappy, but who was the manager? Exactly.
2: That's what I'm thinking, Bernard Tappé. There's 4.25 million and there's 4.25 million.
4: I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, with, with one or two people like that around you, you never know where the money's coming from, or even where it's going or ending up.
1: Again, you talk about people talking about great players of the past 30 years in Britain. Not, You know, Waddle's name doesn't come up that often,
3: does it? No, it it's doesn't. It's not front it of should. mind, which is amazing, really, because he was such I, a good I player. S- I suppose part of that is because his best years were abroad, but also in a country where I assume there was not, I can't remember any coverage of the French League. Um, yeah. So there's that kind of outside out of mind to an extent. And, of course, the other thing is that he didn't, played much under Taylor which is very weird um, yeah. and there was always everyone remembers John Barnes as having a mixed English the careers apparently but Waddle was subject to the same criticism most of the time that he doesn't do it uh, but they would always say that it was because England played four four two. you know it was that kind of back and forth so I think I, I understand why he's not Remembered, but I, I I think he should be. Yeah, there are some. I mean, fa- there are some fantastic
1: uh, YouTube compilations of uh, him at Marseille, which you wouldn't. Have, I think you didn't see them at the time, and to watch them yeah. now, it's, uh, um, it's really good. Sorry, John, I'm go.
4: He was. He certainly had his best years there, but I remember him coming back to Sheffield Wednesday and. Yeah, uh, and both great. him and Peter Beardsley in the early nineties or early to mid nineties and. I think Venables was very interested in one or both in his team, but I think maybe Waddle just sort of was just that bit too obvious. the beginning mm. of the Venables era, um, Beardsley was sort of featured heavily, even more so than yeah. Ted Sherringham at the time as, as the sort of number 10 role. But back to Waddle and his time. A lot of people, of course, remember the Italian 90 penalty shootout, but he was also involved in another penalty shootout defeat for Red Star. But, uh, oh, actually, yeah. of course, they, when they lost to Red Star Belgrade. Did he take a penalty?
3: No, he didn't. No, he only ever took one again for Sheffield Wednesday at Wolves and he missed that as well and he lost
2: <laughs> cheeked out. There's Gary. something in that though. There's something in that because I remember uh seeing Waddle play a couple of times for, for Tottenham and he was he was a curious player in, in many ways. There was a shuffling gait. there was the head down, sort of, a lot of the time. It was the lurch. Was he, he had a
1: lurch yeah, when, in yeah, start, yeah, so
2: his run, didn't he? It? it was incredible. Yeah, the when
4: sausage I... factory as well, <laughs>
2: and all the rest. Yeah. And when I, when I saw him play, he, he really was the kind of player who looked fantastic on YouTube, had YouTube been around, but not so good when you're actually there, because he hugged the touchline and he literally waited for someone to give him the ball, and then he would have an on-switch, which would take him down the line or he'd cut inside or he'd have a shot or something. But you got very, very little out of waddle. um, When, when you did not have the ball, it wasn't just the not tracking back. It was not even keeping a shape. I mean, Guardiola would never have had him because he had no discipline at all. in keeping a shape, he just stand there on the touchline saying, come on, lads, give us the ball. And, I think that shows a little bit in those penalty shootouts and when you compare him to John Barnes who was sometimes said to be you know a, a weak character or you know didn't do it for England Barnes when I saw him play for Liverpool dominated games he demanded the ball he was the focal point things were going through him whereas Waddle was was quietly on the touchline, waiting for a chance to make something happen. And then when he had the ball, he was terrifying, of course, because he would run at you and he'd go off both feet. But for 20 minutes, you could forget he was on the pitch altogether. And then he'd come alive again. So, you know, it, it, again, it doesn't surprise me that when he dropped into being a, a bigger fish in a smaller pool, if you like, in the French League at that time, that he shone. Because when he was sort of a, a player who was at a, a high level, but not at the top level, I don't think that suited his personality. Maybe that's why he didn't get the England caps. Maybe that's why he hasn't got the trophies. And maybe that's why he succeeded in what was, and still is to some extent, a a slightly secondary league compared to the the big three leagues in Europe.
3: The thing I would say against that is two of his finest performances. One was against AC Milan, who were back-to-back European champions. He put them out and almost scored an astonishing goal when he ran from his own half. But also, the World Cup semi-final of Italian 90, he plays centre mid against West Germany, and he's absolutely brilliant. However, yeah. I, ex- I take your point that when he was on the right, wing, it was a different role. Just one thing on Waddle and Sheffield Wednesday, there's a lovely line he came up with in, um, or observation, in an interview with Graham Hunter. He said that when he was at Sheffield Wednesday, and he'd hug the touchline, like you said. When the ball would come to him, he would hear a, a collective clack which would be a lot of people standing up in anticipation and you <laughs> just hear these plastic that, yeah. seats thudding, yeah. get, mm-hmm. which I thought was really nice. Well, and of
2: course, when we're, when well, we're I... talking about Waddle, of course, he never he never took a penalty in his life. He took one or two Pellanties, but never a penalty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it
4: was a great one. He still says penalty to this day.
2: He still does.
4: <laughs> no one's picked him up on that. No, you never hear someone just sort of tap him on the shoulder and say, come on, mate. <laughs>
1: Graham Taylor was amazing for mangling every foreign name he had to say. Babito, Zidane. <laughs> nobody said to him, look, Graham, before you go on next, just, this is how it's said, mate. Do you know what I mean? But anyway, we'll have to leave that there. We'll, we're up to 1989. Uh, well,
2: Everton's current manager is Sam Aladice, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we're up to 1989,
1: so before we get into the 90s, I'm going to take a break there from the transfers. I'm going to talk about our journeyman of the week, which is Mr. Paul Merson. Um, Interesting, as a bit of a well, coincidental, really, I suppose, is that a bit of trivia about Paul Merson. He's actually, did we know? Did you know he's from the same part of London as Cyril Regis? Is they're no. both just no. kind of random trivia, but they're both from they're both from Harlesden in in northwest mm. London. I know that because that's where my wife is from, so I know everything about the footballers that are from around there. And so Shane Ritchie, if you want to, you know, go into that. The uh, the I saw a bit of a story about Paul Merson I saw Paul Merson when he was at Middlesbrough uh, when he because uh, I went to the Coca-Cola Cup semi-final you like this Gary where they beat Liverpool 2-0 to get into the final uh, he scored he scored 15 goals that season at Middlesbrough Merson and he scored the penalty the first penalty and then Marco Branca do you remember Marco Branca mm-hmm. he scored the winning goal and um, and I remember that got them into the final which they lost obviously Um but I remember Karl Heinz Riedler nearly scored a bullet header in the last five minutes. If that had gone in, it would have been out, gone the away goals, I think. So it was, uh, so yeah. And interestingly, the reason why I'm telling that story, one, because I was there and it was interesting to see him. He and was, he, was, he had a really good season at Middlesbrough. But he went to France 98 after that. And I think he's one of
3: the. One of the Came on against Argentina, yeah.
1: Yeah, and scored a penalty, didn't he, when he lost. He but, did. But isn't he, wasn't he. Were Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough weren't in the top division then, were they? Been, they got promoted in ninety
3: seven ninety eight, so they were going yeah. into the top division, yeah. That was it. So quite, he's one
1: of the last. Is he one of the last people to play for England who wasn't
3: an outfield player who wasn't in the top division at the time? He must be. Probably. Kevin Phillips would have done as well mm. a year later. Mm. Um, yeah, there's quite a good story about it. he Merson tells it better, but he said that when um, he'd had a chat with in Drury before the game, and it was something like she said, basically, you're going to score a penalty tonight. And apparently when he went up to take it, he said the goalkeeper was like, trying to intimidate him, but he was just like, forget it, mate. Eileen's got my back. He's going in. <laughs> it's, he tells it better than that,
2: but anyway. Yeah. The um, story about Merson is um, back in the uh, late 80s, I, I worked for Dorothy Perkins. <laughs> yes, I was, I was a, a merchandiser. Um, and our uh, director, a guy called Marvin, was a season ticket holder at Arsenal. And... Um, Uh, he knew I was an Everton fan and you know, he's a a director and I was just a a minion, you know, on the, on the floor at this point. And, um, he came up to the desk and I've got all these, all these women, it was mainly women and gay men. And, um, all, they're all looking at me and saying, What's this director doing talking to that kid over there or something? And he, he said to me, Are you going to Goodison? I said, uh, Yeah, this is the Everton Arsenal game going up. And he said, um, Look out for this kid, Merson. I think he's going to be really something, real player. And then on Monday morning, you're all poring over the figures and you're trying to work out what the weekly sales take or something. Again, he comes up to me, just says, Right, I want chapter and verse. How did he play? And, and all of this yeah. kind of stuff. And Cause Merson was a fantastic footballer and you could see even in those teenage years that he was he was gonna be quite something. You know, he was a he was a, a, a rare kind of English player because he, he had everything in his game. Maybe not quite as much as Gascoigne, but he could beat a man, he could play wide, he could see a pass, he could score a goal. He just about had everything going for him. And I know we'll we'll come to this later, but I just want to make one other point before I hand, hand over is that Merson quite rightly gets a, a lot of stick. We know he's had difficulties in his life and we know he's not the most articulate of, of men. But for someone to have made two careers the way he has made two careers, one in football, one in broadcasting, which are very competitive, and to have done the whole lot really just off instinct is, is quite extraordinary. And, um, you know, I think he deserves credit for that. Uh, there must be we always think there must be more to it than that but maybe there isn't with Merson maybe that's the kind of footballer he was he was instinctive he was as good at 18 as he was at 28 as he was later at 38 and maybe as a broadcaster it's all instinct what you see is what you get and um, you know I think I think he he's almost a kind of singular figure in in so many uh, in so many ways Merson um, there's a a PhD thesis to be written about Merson and I don't mean that in a in an ironic way I mean that in a in a way that that talks about different kinds of masculinity um, different kinds of working class upbringing and temptation and money and and all this kind of stuff and then broadcasting celebrity and everything else I mean he will be on I'm a celebrity I'm a celebrity get me out of here we all know that's going to happen but when it happens well that's perhaps the only question that's left there
4: I mean, the other the other image, I of course, we can't have a chat about uh, Paul Mercer without mentioning the uh, <laughs> the imitation. You know what's going on, what, probably. The imitation of him trying to down Pints of Largo on the pitch at, at Wembley. I think it was after the the League Cup final was supposed to be. Yeah, I think actually, it was. A few months yeah. later. And, and that's the first thing that springs to mind. He hates the it now, doesn't he?
1: And the hair. The hate hair it?
4: that he, he had. The hair. Well.
1: He hates, the, the, he hates the mime now. He saw his son doing it and said it almost really? broke his heart, yeah.
4: Yeah. The other thing that springs to mind with him is not just the hair, but a guy who would, would strike the ball. And it, he seemed to score more goals off off the post than anyone else I can remember. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Maybe there's no stats to back me up on this, but but what the hell? I, I just remember so many shots of him that were, he would strike from just outside the area and it would go in off the post. And, and I don't remember a player doing that so often. But the other thing, of course, is this, as you said, the hair being in his face and and one more thing, I think, some of the players on the list today, when I, was, when I was thinking about this, I'm not sure if they would necessarily be as successful in today's game. But I think someone like him in a four-two-three-one, yeah. 2 someone who could probably play in any one of the three positions behind the main striker, I think he'd adapt very well.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. And actually, there's a kind of parallel universe with Merson because he went to Borough from Wenger's emerging side. And the only reason he went was because Borough, second division Borough, were actually offering more money. And he said he was gambling a lot of the time. Like, seriously, that's where he went. And it actually had a really good season, Wenger's first. And you think the next year, Arsenal won the double, obviously went to another level, played football from the future. And you kind of wonder what might have happened. He still had a great career. He still played really well at Borough, Villa, and particularly Portsmouth. But you do wonder if he'd stayed under Wenger. He went to yeah. Middlesbrough just because he was gambling. That's been quite heartbreaking yeah. in a way. Yeah, Nothing against Barrett, don't get me wrong, but you know, <laughs> Arsenal were a serious side. There.
1: When I was... Um, I remember, there's one particular thing I remember, and it always sticks my mind about Merston, and I can't remember what game it was, but I know it happened. It was when he was at Villa, and the ball rolled out to him, probably just about, what, five metres outside the D, maybe a little bit further back. And he basically just sort of, you know, a kind of like... Um, imagine hitting it with a, a chip with a golf club where you, where you don't follow through you just doof and into the foot he did that mm. with his left foot mm. and the ball floated over the top of the defence onto whichever the strikers was toe and they scored and I'll never forget and reason I remember it's because Alan, Alan Hansen then in the punditry thing did that classic thing about you know every Brazilian had done that it would be <laughs> and, you know and all that stuff you know hackneyed old stuff but the main thing for me is that, in a way, just was a perfect picture to kind of play. he was that point you made, Gary, about the instinct thing. he just saw this ball rolling yeah, towards him yeah. and something in that split second told him, bang, I'm doing this, and it was perfect. And actually, I don't think enough credit because he's seen as almost like ultra 90s with the boozing and the gambling and all that. And I think the the class is
3: sometimes forgotten about, really. He had so much style as well. I think he was a player more than most whose performances were affected by his mental state as well. Yeah, When he was happy, he was... A very, very good player, but there were a lot of periods in his career when he was struggling, various vices, and I think that, that had an impact.
1: We'll have to uh, draw Paul Merson to a close there, I think. Can we I are, just say one? Running short of
3: time.
2: Can I just say one other thing? Is that that I suggested Paul Merson because he, I think he is a, a very interesting character, but. You said, Lee, that the journeyman can, can be two definitions. There is the, the jobbing pro uh, journeyman, but there's the, the man who travelled. And we, we ought really to list Paul Merson's clubs because it is True, yeah. an extraordinary list. Um, Arsenal, yeah. Brentford on loan, Middlesbrough, Aston Villa, Portsmouth, Walsall, not for two games, 68, <laughs> Tamworth, Witton Athletic, Welshpool Town and Carrow. Which uh, Lee, I'll have to defer to your Kyra. Uh, pronunciation, Kyra. There, uh, in 2017, perhaps there's a bit of a celebrity coming out for one game. But I mean, it's it's partly the background, the gambling and the stuff uh, that goes on uh, out off the pitch. But um, there are very few players who who had a career of of that variety um, and traveling traveling around, player, higher and. Uh, you know, he I don't think he ever fell out of love with the game. He may have, may have fell out of love with Paul Merson every now and again, <laughs> but not with the game.
1: There you go, everybody, Paul Merson. What are your memories of Paul Merson? Let us know at Ness Dormer Pod. That brings us to the end of part one of our British Transfer Record special. It ended up becoming a little bit of an epic, so we split it across two episodes. I hope you enjoyed that first one. Part two will be coming along soon. Keep an eye on your subscriptions.